If you think criminals deserve punishment, keep your mouth shut. Meanwhile, others can say just about anything and get a book deal. Publishers Weekly calls this new book, In Defense of Looting, a provocative Marxist-informed defense of looting as an effective protest tactic. Author Vicki Osterwell says hey, looting everybody. Welcome strikes to this at episode the heart of the, Charlie of Kirk Show. Of the, the case police. for looting? And it's not actually hurting anybody. Is there anybody. a case for stealing other people's yeah, stuff? Yeah, tell that to the countless small businesses destroyed, many owned or frequented by blacks and Asians with, and others with, lacking with no blind businesses. Where is cancel culture when we really need it? The author has distanced from the individual. I don't believe that woman wants anyone to come all right, Dana, should anyone actually pay for this book or should they just take it? This week we have Vicki Osterweil with us, uh, author of In Defense of Looting. Uh, I'm going to let her introduce herself a bit to the audience and have some questions about uh, the book, but also kind of uh, her history as an activist, um, as well as some of the questions that folks sent in. Uh, but I'd really prefer that Vicki introduce herself to the audience. Uh, so Vicki, how are you? And can you give yourself a bit of an intro to our audience today? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, you know, I mean, considering everything going on in the world um, and to the extent that anyone is doing well right now, I guess. Um, I am, as you said, a writer and editor. Um, I uh, an organizer. Um, I'm in Philadelphia. Um, and yeah, I wrote this book um, basically over over a five year period. Most of that time was being um, screwed up, screwed around by a, by a publishing house, honestly. But um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so it's been a real it's been it's been a really long and huge project to get this book out there in defense of looting. And I'm really really happy that it's finally out and that people are reading it and um, talking about it. Not all of them very positively. Um, and it's just been yeah, it's been a pleasure to really like get to have these conversations and to and to. To hopefully, like you know, share some of some of the stuff I learned in doing the research, and and some of what I've learned in in oh god, at this point, like a decade of organizing and and fighting in the street because I'm getting old, it's getting on there now. <laughs> yeah, I I don't think you're getting old, but I know what <laughs> you mean. You. I went to a protest um this summer where it was the first time I felt like um, an elder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, you see all these like little like young zoomers and kill, and it felt nice. But at the same time, I was like, oh, no, I am the old auntie now at the protest. <laughs> I was like, I exactly. am the person that I used to look up to, which like, I hope I'm embodying. Um, I hope I'm trying to be the ancestor I want to be in the now. But we'll <laughs> see. I think we're we're all trying. Um, yeah. But but um, your book has been described as impassioned, important and provocative. And I, I very much so agree. And um I run an abolition reading group and we used your 2014 article in defense of looting, which I think. Um, is kind of a piece that people started sharing and circulating again. And I remember when it came out, um, I believe you were an editor at the New Inquiry, right? And so I want to I want to maybe zoom back to when that piece came out in the headspace you were in writing that. Yeah. Um, so I, I was an editor at the New Inquiry at the time. Um, that was during, uh, it was sort of in the first few weeks of the Ferguson uprising. Um, and 
uh, I wrote the piece and the book is like sort of an expansion of the, the thesis of the piece, honestly. Um, I wrote the piece, uh, because I was sort of watching a lot of people, even like people on the left, um, you know, people who, who claim to support what at that time was becoming called the black lives matter movement saying, you know, Oh, well, we support this movement, but we don't support the rioting and the looting. Um, and I had remembered, you know, like I said, I'm old back in 2011, um, in the UK, there was, uh, actually an incredibly massive wave of riots in the summer of 2011 in the UK, uh, after the police killing of Mark Duggan and huge proportions of the left, um, both the, um, sort of labor party and, you know, the sort of liberal left, but also, you know, people who call themselves revolutionaries, basically the entire white left disavowed the rioting that happened in 2011 and in doing so like fundamentally like failed to act in solidarity with the rioters um basically told them to drop dead um they so they got that uprising got completely crushed by repression that was aided by the left and there were all these arguments being made by people on the left you know from you know from whatever from the SWP who've turned out to be total creeps um to like Slavo Žižek and stuff right um so i had been percolating you know the sort of frustration with the um both anti-black and sort of anti-poor um nature of the disavowal of looting and rioting uh, back in 2011 you know seeing that reemerge in the US it's it felt very important to not let another moment pass where that um where that sort of line of thinking that you know looters and rioters are quote unquote not part of the movement are um, you know, are being consumers, are, uh, you know, acting against the best interests of, of the movement, whatever, whatever arguments were made, that there be a strong and, and vocal and, 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 you know, uh, forceful counter argument to that. Um, and I wasn't the only one doing that there, there, there were plenty of folks at the time and continually up to the present doing that, that work. So. Thank you. And I guess, um, like at that time, so, so we're, I want to get into this a bit more later, but, um, this this book has obviously caused waves on both the right and the left. Um, it's kind of I don't know how you feel about it, but if I was in your position, I'd kind of I I kind of like laugh. Like I've had one viral piece before that had weird reactions. Yeah, and I I don't know um, what it could be like. Yeah, in twenty fourteen, did you get any of this kind of reception that you're getting now? Like even a microcosm of it, because this this essay was a mini 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 like seed that yeah. now has like bloomed into this book. Um, at the time there was, you know, at the time there was a lot more sort of positive sharing than negative. Um, one thing that happened was, um, D. Ray McKesson, um, <laughs> the sort of, you know, celebrity activist leader, uh, out of that last wave, um, taught a class at Yale, um, mm -hmm. and he taught the piece there. Um, and so there was like a, you know, like a sort of a five minutes hate around that, although it was mostly pointed at him at the time. Um, I think that was in 2015. Um, so there was like a little taste of that and I had a sense, you know, I, I had an idea that like if this book was going to do well, it was going to involve really, really like intense, you know, some intense harassment and hate from, from the right. Um, I didn't expect it to be quite such a bomb shell. Um, I figured, you know, it's, it's mostly a work of history and like anarchist theory, like who's going to read, you know, like, like a few mm -hmm. people will like see the title and get upset and like, that will be it. You know, um, it turns out, no, a lot of people are going to see the title and get upset. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so yeah, it, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, 
in in retrospect, like I feel very powerful and proud that like all of these people from like the sort of pseudo left all the way to the far right, all these people who I don't like, like were you know with one NPR appearance, I made them all lose their minds. Yeah, um, yeah, that was <laughs> that was very pleasing. I felt very very powerful, but at the time it was very stressful. There were doxing attempts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, luckily none successful. Um, There's a lot of harassment, so it, it you know it it. It had a very big psychic toll, um, but the effect is that that everyone has heard about the book and a lot of people are reading it, and that's that's really what I wanted was was for comrades to read it and critique it and think with it, and and that started to happen, and it's making me really happy. Yeah, and I think um, people in my life who I don't think would have picked it up are talking about it and mentioning it. And yesterday, I just mentioned it to like a few people. Were like, "What are you up to tomorrow?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm interviewing this person," and people like who I didn't expect were like, "Yes." She was on NPR. (laughs) Um, And it was just super interesting that a a book from like, I don't know, usually when you see these like little presses, right, Um, or or left presses, I would say, um, it's only like your very close circle that tends to know. Yeah. Like this, this like Verso and AK and things like that. But this book seems to have become almost it's mainstreaming in a way. Yeah, totally. And that's, you know, that's. I think that's that's an interesting an interesting thing about this moment um historically not to be too like I'm not trying to be cocky because ultimately what this book is about like what this what all of this drama around the book is about and I want to be very clear is that there have been all these commentators from um you know left to right across the political spectrum who have been holding all of this hatred and mm-hmm. anti-black rage at the movement mm-hmm. um and like the appearance of my book um gave them a moment to express it right they all got to express their disdain for the movement by like but displaced onto my book so like don't get it twisted like you know like i'm just some i'm just some 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 girl who wrote a book honestly like <laughs> but um but with that said like one of the things that the liberals um who spent weeks talking about my book are presuming is that the book itself must be like the sort of thing they would produce, which is to say, just like basically like a a pretty, like a spicy hot take, like a grift that has no actual content to it, you know? And uh, I think like they made a tactical error because like, I'm actually just, like I said, like, I'm not really, I didn't write it to, to make money. You'll be shocked to hear that my anti-property screed was not about getting rich. Um, <laughs> and like, and like, so I'm actually like, you know, pretty serious about the stuff I'm talking about in there. And, and, and they sort of, it ended up getting spread really, really widely because they assumed that any argument I make would be beneath contempt, you know, that it would, that, that, that it would be, um, a useless sort of trolly account that could be dismissed. Um, I'm hoping that they're wrong and that it's much more dangerous than they think. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, it's, it's a history book in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think people exactly. are like missing that point. But I, I also like would love to ask you, uh, how did you like enter leftist politics? Because you have been uh, doing this, I would say for you mentioned like a decade of activism, right? Or organizing. Yeah. So yeah. um, we, we both shared about feeling like older now in these <laughs> movements. And I always like to ask uh, comrades, like, how, how did you enter leftist politics and, and like the framework that you like to apply before we dive further into the the kind of contents of the book? Totally. Um, so, I mean, I guess like, uh, like a lot of people of my generation, like a lot of, I mean, I think white anarchists of my generation, like I entered into it through punk, um, through like a lot of, um, a lot of the sort of dialogue and the books and the, you know, I was always a nerd though too. So like I was in a punk scene, but like mostly it was cause I was reading books about it. And like, I discovered, you know, those books sort of pointed me to a lot of like anarchist theory, um, eventually. So I think that was sort of 
the first, you know, I mean, I think I always had, I always had a, an, an inkling about, you know, about heart injustice and I, and politics always felt important to me even when I was a teenager. But, um, but I think like, um, you know, and I was, I was very lucky in that I didn't have many experiences as a child that, that forced me to radicalize. So I was very lucky and privileged in that way. So, uh, I, I came into these, these politics sort of, um, you know, like when I had my first like real full-time job when I was 18, um, when I was working and, and sort of just like trying to figure out what I want to do, um, before I went to college. And, and yeah, I think that's, I, I came to it through punk and books basically like, um, and then, um, but then I think, you know, my, my, my real, and I did some stuff before, before 2011, but my real sort of activation as I, as I sort of think about it happened in 2011 when I just happened to be in Barcelona, um, that summer, it was like a vacation I had, I had planned. It was like, you know, that, with some friends and, uh, there was this huge movement there. The, the, the movement of the squares was, was really massive in Spain and Greece that summer. Um, and I had also just started writing, um, uh, professionally is technically true. And it was thinking it was like $50 for a piece or whatever, but I was excited and I like wrote a piece about it and then like it published. And then I went back to the camp and they had seen the piece and I talked to them about it. And then I sort of was part of, you know, I spent a week, you know, as part of this sort of occupy proto, this sort of, you know, the, the Spanish sort of, uh, occupy wave movement, um, and decided that that had to happen in the U S. So I think from there till the present has when I've really been like active, active is from since 2011. Oh, and and somebody actually submitted a question um, about your time with Occupy. Um, so uh, thank you to the listener who submitted this question. But they they said that they wanted to at me to ask you specifically about doing work with Occupy, but also your experiences witnessing people from Occupy who eventually went far right. Mm, interesting. Um, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, I, you know, my my experiences with Occupy. Um, I, I was very, very involved in New York, um, which is sort of where, where, where it obviously began, um, from, from the early days, um, from that summer sort of, you know, when the call first went out in August on, um, and I have, there's a lot of lessons there that, that I think, um, are worth, worth thinking through and talking about. But one of the ones that I think is important that, that links into this question is that the, um, while Occupy reintroduced a sense of um, street politics and 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 sort of um, collective protest and action um, as as an important mode of 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 action in the U.S., which after sort of a decade of of really intense reaction and and quiet in the streets, basically, which is not to disregard the other movements that happened in that period, um, I think that was very important. But it also did so by having a um, discourse of, of really sort of vague populism um, for the most part. You know, the 99% people would point out at the time, you know, n- much of the movement wasn't even that anti-cop, even though it was largely grown by images of police brutality. Um, you know, people would say the cops are part of the 99%. Um, there were like Ron Paul, like libertarian types always around. I haven't fully like tracked a lot of the sort of right swing of some of those folks. Um, I sort of got interested in other movements and, and sort of moved away from the people who sort of clung to the, um, banner of Occupy, uh, after about 2012. But I think one person that I remember is, um, in New York is Tim Poole, um, fascist grifter, um, yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> was at the time was in, um, was in New York. And I remember, uh, 
some conflict with him um, that people I was around uh, were, let's say, were um, doing some things to some some cop cars, um, and Tim Pool got in their face and started filming them doing it, you know, doing a crime and saying, you know, you're committing a crime, you know, I'm live streaming you, um, and got the got the the camera knocked out of his hand and got got shoved to the ground, I think, and um, if I remember correctly, and. You know, there were there was already this conflict uh, that was sort of near the end of the movement when when we things had really accelerated and people were were fighting a lot harder in the streets than they had been, you know, in the early days in September. Um, but I think there was already there were these people already around, like Tim Pool, who were sort of grifting on the moment, who were sort of wanted to be part of this sort of um, this 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 thing that was happening, but didn't really. Um, have any commitment to, to social justice and um, and that and that sort of that that confrontation with Tim Pool like set him on his path towards sort of you know then he would go to Ferguson and and there he would fully switch switch sides you know so I think there was there were a fair number of of people like that because the movement was largely like was majority white was majority you know uh, middle class people who like had lost their future in the in the financial collapse and that's like a that's a that's a burgeoning group and class of people that's ripe for for right wing politics as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing um, and answering that. And I that's like a Tim Pool is just like a great. I would say he's horrible, but like yeah. a good example for people to learn from um, and be cognizant of this type of growing wanting to be part of it but at the same time being exposing people to harm and grifting exactly and it, and it's telling and it's telling that someone who at the time was willing to live like you know his whole ideology was i have to show everything the mm-hmm. truth i think he probably thought he was on team you know like i don't think he thought he he wasn't a right winger at that point um openly anyway but I think, you know, we can learn uh, something that's very important is like seeing the tactics that people are using in the street, like often will reflect um, their inclinations and their tendencies, which isn't to say that like everyone who's live streaming, it's obviously like a crypto fascist, but like, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, the fact that he refused when asked to stop filming, refused to do so. Right. And the mm-hmm. fact that he was trying to expose quote unquote people doing crimes, that that's the kind of person that then would over time, like become a fascist, like is not to me surprising. Yeah, and we see that with um the like the our disagreements about blurring faces yeah. in photos during the last uh, seven months of uprisings. Um, and I I'd, I'd want to uh, pivot now to your book, and I would like to hear you explain more about it in your own words. But what really like captivated myself and some others is the arguments you make for the intersection of whiteness, property, and police, uh, but also kind of the myth of private property. And I've I'm less focused on like what the right wing critiques are, because I, I think they're bullshit. But um, the left wing critiques, I tried to like read some of them, I couldn't really get through them. And that's my, <laughs> I guess, own bias. But I, I just don't think they're watertight arguments. But um, I, I'm so curious about uh, you expanding on kind of this, this intersection that you chose to, to use and the histories that you pulled from uh, to make this kind of argument and, and show and illustrate the history of whiteness, property and police. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's, that is basically the central, the central thesis of the book, um, uh, is that, and and of the original piece even, you know, it was sort of, um, was that it was precisely that, that looting as a tactic cuts at that history. And that's part of why it's so powerful and why it's so radical, even though ultimately it's just sort of mass shoplifting, right? Like it, it, Mm -hmm. it, on some level, it is not actually 
you know, I mean, I think a lot of people on the left sort of fetishize, you know, guerrilla war or like, you know, you know, militaries or revolutionary upheaval and like looting on some level is significantly less, um, violent than, than any of those things. Um, but it also, um, but it also, you know, it, it, it causes tremendous amounts of, of concern trolling and panic. And, um, and I think, and, and that's precisely because it gets that history. So it is the whole argument of the book. So I'll try and summarize, but I don't know how well I'll do. Um, but, uh, but basically the argument in the book is that, is that, um, that capitalism, uh, in general and private property in particular are built on the grounds of the new world in the uh, land um, stolen from indigenous people and through the labor of um, eventually predominantly African, but also indigenous and, and occasionally some other racialized groups, but, but mostly African slaves. Um, and that the entire history of, of property and of, and of the United States and indeed of, of global capitalism is built on this racial accumulation. But as, um, as sort of as sort of modern capitalism develops, and as these concepts of liberal democracy and um, you know and liberty and all these other all these other ideas that that America is often you know at the cutting edge of start to develop, um, it becomes very very difficult to explain why there are all these indigenous people who don't have rights to property um, when they've been living on these lands for for tens of thousands of years, um, and it's very hard to explain why some people. Um, are incapable of having any rights and indeed themselves are property. Um, and so um, race and racial ways of understanding the world, which um, I think the important work of Cedric Robinson um, and Sylvia Winter demonstrate are very, very deep in European enlightenment thought and in European thought. Um, it's a very deep racial structures are, are very core forms of ideology uh, in, in, in the European worldview and in the, the enlightenment worldview and the, the idea of the rational man. These are all built on racial hierarchies of labor um, in the, in mercantilist Europe, um, in the colonies, but also on racialized ideas of uh, reason and people who lack reason. That's Sylvia Winter's sort of big, one of, one of the things I take from her that's, that's very important. Um, and that, that, you know, for there to be a reasonable man who is capable of having property and life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness, there must be an unreasonable person who is, who is outside of that outside of that consideration. Um, and that unreasonable person is always an indigene or an African. Anyway, so all of which is to say racial ideology um, uh, begins to, de or, or develops at the exact, along as a legal and ideological justification for the systems of property and ownership that make capitalism possible. Um, and so the very, very roots of capital are are inextricably linked with the roots of race. and And it's not that like, I think a lot of um, sort of Marxist theory, um, even anarchist theory, has has tended to see race as a sort of management technique or something. You know, like it's sort of like an idea that like that that the capitalist owners use to increase their profits. Um, and what the black radical tradition has countered with, and what I what I I completely agree with and, and push in the book, is that no, like they are inextricable. Mm -hmm. um, racial forms of domination, colonial forms of domination are necessary to the production of capitalism and to the ways that we think about capital and property. So that's the common, that's, that's the, the, the meeting of property and race. Um, and, and then from there, from that, from that point of argument, the, uh, whiteness, which is a, which is not in fact a hereditary or a cultural or a national, um, tradition. Whiteness is actually a form of property. Um, Cheryl Harris here is very important. Whiteness as property is a very, very important essay. Everyone should read it if they haven't. And 
basically like whiteness is the thing that gives a person life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's why whiteness can expand. So, you know, mm-hmm. in, when, when whiteness first emerges in the 18th century, um, it really only means male, you know, uh, mostly male Protestant, quote unquote, Native Americans, okay, non-immigrant white European Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, it welcomes Germans and Irish and Jews and Czechs and Norwegians and Swedes. All of these people weren't white for much of the 19th and into the 20th century, right? And they go to the Greeks and they all slowly are added um, to whiteness. And, and that is possible because whiteness is in fact a form of property that makes you a legal subject and citizen. Whereas blackness is a mark um, uh, that makes you potential property in 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 this world. So so yeah, so so the police emerge in the 19th century to get to the third term here. The police emerge in order to maintain these lines between black and white and to maintain property and to protect in particular white property from threats of black people um at this point largely enslaved folks um who are you know in 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 constant rebellion and revolt and flight um and fugitivity so so the police emerge to to keep these structures in place that are built on this this long history of racial uh, domination and capitalist accumulation and settler colonialism, um, and so when when folks loot, when folks loot, when especially when black people, but or or in a black led rebellion, loot, they are getting straight to that history because they are repressing the police in order to destroy property, right? Um, and and looting destroys property in that it's what was a commodity in a store becomes a gift free to everyone, right? It's, it loses its nature as private property, but it, it maintains its value, its use value. It stays a thing that we can use. So looting, like, looting demonstrates the way in which the idea of something as property is just that, an idea. And if we can push the police out of a zone and we can control these resources ourselves, they, we don't have to treat them as property. We don't have to be alienated by work and by the wage and by money in order to have things that we need. Um, and that's sort of the 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 fundamental argument of the book, I guess. <laughs> no, thank you. That was that was incredibly. If I ever write anything, I can't articulate it back, and you just articulated it back so beautifully. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I felt very self conscious, so I'm glad. No, you gave like a mini <laughs> lesson. But uh, one thing I really appreciated was uh, the the connections made with uh, indigenous like dispossession and um the history of slavery again like it's a very it's a very much a history book to me and um and I'm not sure if that's what you meant when you wrote it to be a history book but I I took it as like a you're walking us through this history that brings us to this moment um and this idea I keep fixating on that I would love to explore with you a bit more is this idea of open land or virgin land or like the latin terra nullius, which is like nobody's land, which is like the logic that was used and is continually used for imperialism, taking of indigenous land, um, that the people are not uh, capable of, of like, quote unquote, working their land. Um, and, and then that, that this, this whole nation state is built on that type of violence. But then you have like this liberal kind of gasping and shock at like somebody taking a pair of Nikes. Um, <laughs> and, and, and like, what, like, I know you've done so much research and you've been on the ground yourself, but like, is there a way to ever like, kind of like shift these, these people's thinking, but also like, how, how do, how do certain narratives in your opinion proliferate? Whereas like, yeah, we're like living on a, on a, on a nation built from like 
blood and murder and so much violence, but the violence that people see, including liberals and and some leftists who have argued against the case for looting and the defense of looting and and shamed looters um, as like not being good for leftist gains. Like, why are they so like appalled at somebody like getting a shirt they need or getting like I saw baby formula being shoplifted or whatever, not shoplifted, but, you know, taken, which is fine. But and baby formula tends to be locked in some places. And it's really expensive. Baby formula is so expensive. It's so expensive. And so and so like to me, I'm like, okay, you're claiming that you care about all this racial uh, injustice that happens and you care about this. But what makes you like appalled is seeing things that people need taken um yeah i I guess i'd like love to explore that with you if if we're ever going to break through to those people so yeah it's 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 a big question um i completely agree with your assessment that this is a history book um that was sort of why it was so funny i think that people got so upset it like really it's just a history book like (laughs) like you know people were so angry but it's like you know it clearly didn't crack the book you know because it's like mostly just a historical account um Mm -hmm. anyway um Although, although to be fair to them, history is very dangerous, and I think it's very, very important that we know history. And just a history book, I think, is not is not is not actually doing credit to the power that that history has up into the present. Um, so that is why I wrote a history is precisely because I think it's very relevant and important. So I think there's you know there's there's on on, on the one hand, um, this book is largely written to reach. Um, people who are part of the movement, but who aren't sure about these tactics. Um, I think a big part of the audience for me that, that I think is important and that I'm trying to speak to, um, to the extent that I was doing that consciously, which, which isn't very, I'm a very disorganized and and, and weird writer. Um, so I don't really think about who I'm talking to so much necessarily, but, um, but I think in retrospect, a lot of the people I was talking to are people who, um, and I say this in the original piece as well, people who think who are about it, genuinely about it, genuinely want to see freedom, genuinely want to see the end of this police violence, but, but, but for a variety of reasons, um, have come to accept that nonviolence is the only way forward or that rioting and looting doesn't work or it doesn't get the job, you know, it doesn't, it, it makes us look bad or any of these other arguments that happen. Uh, so, so that's one group of people I'm really trying to talk to. But on the other hand, um, there is a difference, I think, and I think this is a, this is a, a difficulty that, that a lot of us have um, on the left. Uh, there's a difference between what I would call a uh, capital L liberal and someone who sort of has liberal politics. Um, and someone who has liberal politics, I think, is basically anyone um, growing up in the U.S. Um, you know, maybe now there's more access to radical thought, but when I was growing up, certainly, like, like sort of, you know, being a Democrat was sort of like about as radical as anything got. And, you know, you sort of, you supported the most progressive sort of vision of change that was coming from the mainstream, but you didn't really have a sense of radical possibilities or politics. And then like, you know, as, as you asked at the beginning of the interview, you know, we all have these experiences that then sort of radicalize us. Um, so when we think about liberals, we think of, we tend to collapse those people with the people I call capital L liberals. Um, so, you know, sort of people whose whole career is based in the Democratic Party or the Atlantic Monthly Magazine or a think a liberal think tank, um, people who um, have a class position, uh, people who own a lot of property, who are wealthy, um, you know, upper middle class or middle class, um, who have a have a real um, ideological commitment to their class position and to their place in this society um, and to where it is and to how things are going. And those people can't be spoken to. Like the capital L liberals are our class enemies and they will Mm. never, ever be, um, you know, 
at, at best they can be neutralized. Like they, they won't, they won't side with us any more than the police will. Um, and I mean, you know, maybe occasionally, you know, I think some of them will eventually break out of it. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think they're doomed or whatever, but, but, but most of them have, have made a choice um, historically and, and, and have positioned themselves in a certain way. Um, and I have no interest in speaking to those people. And, um, they returned that they were, they returned that contempt, um, when the book <laughs> yeah. came out. Um, so I think, you know, so I think, I think there is these, there's these, there's these, um, I think a lot of leftists spend a lot of time thinking about liberals who need to be converted. But when they're thinking about that, they're thinking about people like them who, when they were 16, didn't know any better, right. Than mm -hmm. the Democrats or whatever. Um, and that's a very different kind of person, um, from the liberals. Um, but yeah, I think, I think just sort of more in, in general to the, the theoretical question that you asked about sort of the defense of property. Um, a lot of people in this country are very committed to protecting their place in the society, um, their, their, their wealth, their power, um, you know, uh, their whiteness, their, their, their money, their property. Um, and they don't want to look, they are there. And, and this country has built really, really impressive and massive forms of ideological and um, historical and media mediated ways of not looking at the truth of the history of this country, which is, as you say, it's on stolen land um, built on enslaved labor, genocidal enslaved labor, right? Um, and, the, and the people who are the descendants of those who those original victims are still with us and still fighting and still being victimized and still being stolen from and still being expropriated. I, I think also the messaging right now, just thinking about Democrats, like you mentioned, and, and what people view as, I guess, progressive for them. Um, Joe Biden is obviously having messaging. <laughs> he was the one who recently said rioting is not protesting, looting is not protesting, and it is lawless, and those who do it should be prosecuted. I, I think it's interesting that um, that is that is also his followers are that group of people who the night that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died were like, let's burn things down, let's riot. And I, I would be so uh, interested to hear your thoughts on who who people think it's OK to riot or loot for and who they do not think it's OK. And in, in the history of, of, of when, I guess, um, things are painted as righteous or not righteous, um, things being like riots or protests, because the the kind of the energy I saw for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, let's burn it all down. I was I was in shock. I was like, these are the people who were mad about like what's been going on after May twenty fifth. Yeah, and and um and most of them are not actually going to burn anything down. And most of them, what most of them mean when they say that is, let's go out in the street after the election and have a you know and and have a nonviolent demonstration and chastise the anarchists who are actually fighting. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think they want to, you know, the, the, the historic role of the Democrats in the U S and, um, is to, is to co-opt and control movement energy, um, and to funnel it back into, um, into the state. And that has been the deal that, um, FDR and wall street have made, um, with the democratic party, like made in the thirties, um, as part of the new deal. Um, that has been the, the state of American order since then is that the Democrats, give a little more power to the federal government and to Washington rather than to the capitalists in exchange for being able to buy off movements and being able to contain rebellion. Um, and that's what the Democrats have done historically. And the fact that the Democrats chose Biden 
um, rather than Sanders or even Warren, I think, um, reflects a real rot at the heart of the party. They genuinely don't understand that that's their role anymore. Um, Biden is really bad at that. That's like really, he's <laughs> yeah. really not like he's really, um, he's really not someone who is going to capture any left energies. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think, and I think in a way, um, Part of the the ferocity of the uprising was precisely that the Democrats had no answers, mm-hmm. um, that they demonstrated their their contempt. Um, I, I I think about it's a it's a thought experiment, but I think about a lot. If Bernie Sanders had been the candidate during that when the uprising had started, how many bail funds that literally got people out of cages? How much of that money would instead have gone to the Bernie campaign? Like mm-hmm. how much literal material resources that ended up helping spread the uprising and protect people in it, how many of those resources would have instead been funneled into electoral politics if the Democrats had been doing their job better and had chosen Bernie Sanders um, or even just let him win the primary, which he probably would have done without their their sort of, you know, interference. Meddling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think about that because I think it's it's important to think about the ways in which while while it is very, very reasonable to want someone in power who is going to take climate change seriously. Um, and it is very, very reasonable to want someone in power who seems to be aligned with our goals. Actually, um, social Democrats have a tendency to just to, to and, and, and even sort of left liberals have a tendency to siphon that energy out. Of, of a movement. Um, and I think that we ultimately are the only people who are going to protect ourselves and each other. Um, so when liberals sort of say, you know, oh, we're going to riot for, for, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, they didn't, uh, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would have been, I would have loved to see it. It would have been hilarious. Um, they didn't do that, but like, I think, um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to trying to demonstrate that they too are in it and that they care about the struggle. But, you know, for them, it's, it's, for them, it's just a it's just a game of politics. It's about you know who what what nine old fuckers have power over all of us you mm-hmm. know in a robe you know sitting in D.C. Um, whereas when the the people in white robes rather than black ones or the people in blue in blue uniforms um, murder people in our communities, then they want us to 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 vote. You know, um, it's it's contemptible. I I've heard you um, mention that. You don't believe justice will be found in the ballot box, which I I love that just that sentence that justice will not be found in the ballot box because of um, I get called. So I'm living in Canada right now, but I am an American citizen uh, and I get called by Democrats abroad like every day and send cards. <laughs> and I'm like, um, no, thing. like I'm just yeah. like it's, it's just one of these things. So I, I would love if you could even like just expand on if justice will not be found in the ballot box. Where do you think justice will be found? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be found in the street. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, um, assuming that um, Trump doesn't eat it or go into a coma um, right now. <laughs> or um, die from COVID. Um, I shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, it doesn't do any good to pray for it. But, uh, you know, that's not usually how prayer works. But uh, <laughs> but assuming that that doesn't happen, um, then, you know, I mean, he has been he has been telegraphing for a long time that he intends to uh, basically steal the election through voter repression, claims of fraud around around mail-in ballots, um, through voter intimidation, um, which is, you know, a, a, a classic American story. Um, and and it's only been recently that that, that stuff has been less visible. Um, last 40 years, a lot of that voter repression has been slightly less visible, though still active. And uh, and so he's just sort of ramping it back up to where it was sort of in the, in the, in the previous eras um, of voter suppression. So the idea that 
that you can, on the one hand, say, you know, Trump is this sort of generational threat to American democracy. And you can see he's like basically saying, I am not going to listen to these election results. Mm -hmm. You can see that. And then you can tell people to like vote like harder. Like, are they going to go like vote? Like, what are they going to like? I don't understand what you think voting is going to do when he's literally saying, I am going to annul the election. Right. Um, So you actually have this very interesting situation right now where I think a lot of a lot of people who are not particularly invested in electoral politics are thinking about and planning what they're going to do in response to a contested election, whereas the Democrats and the people invested in the voting like don't really have a plan, um, seem to want to fight it in the courts, um, so uh, if at all. And part of that also, I think, sorry to, to, to sort of keep keep sort of spiraling further and further no, on tangents. Please don't apologize. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you said yes to joining me and I wanted to hear you talk. So. Okay, girl, good, good. Um, I don't think the Democrats want to win this election, actually, because mm-hmm. the economy is about to tank. Um, if, if, if the stock market doesn't crash before the election, like it will be a miracle for Trump, frankly. Like, like the economy is in terrible, terrible shape. We're facing another lockdown because this country is in deep, deep COVID denial and it is, is just a disaster in every way um, in terms of public health. Um, but even without that, even without the pandemic, the economy was headed for a reckoning. Um, the, the, the collapse of 2008 got kicked down the road and we are now paying the bill um, or we are shortly going to be paying the bill. So I think there's a level on which the Democrats, or at least the Democrat National Com- Committee, doesn't want to be in the White House for the coming four years because they're going to be devastating. These are going to be a brutal four years. And they're perfectly happy to have Trump run the show. So while I think they do genuinely hate Trump um, for the way that he delegitimizes their beautiful presidency, which they love so much, um, I think they hate that about Trump, but they don't really care. They don't really hate his policies that much. They're not, in many ways, they're not that different from Obama. They're just like more openly racist. So I think, um, yeah, so I think there's a large section of, of the Democratic Party that doesn't even want to win this election. And is and that's why they are willing to, you know, you know, even on their um, on their party platform, which is a non-binding document that they lie on every single election, they wouldn't even like toss a bone to Medicare for all or the Green New Deal or any of that. They're not even... They're not even pretending to nod to the left. They're like, you will accept this Republican, Joe Biden, or you will fuck right off. Yeah. Um, because they don't want to win. Yeah. And I, yeah. And even um, yesterday at the town hall in Miami, he, Joe Biden was like, I am the most anti-Castro candidate. I've taken on the Castros. And he was just like, I, like he, nobody asked about communism and he started just going on an anti-communist rampage. Like uh, <laughs> he doesn't want to build anything bigger in that party, but I, yeah, I think you're right that justice will be in the streets and um, you make a poignant case for looting as a tactic, but you name other tactics in your book. And um, I would love if you talk a bit about that. Totally. Um, yeah, I think looting, you know, looting is a is a um, a powerful frame to get into the questions that I want to, to address. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that's been very important to liberation movements has been armed self-defense. Um, I spend a mm-hmm. lot of time talking about that. And there's, you know, an increasingly um, large body of exciting, you know, academic work on the role of armed self-defense in the civil rights movement. Um, and now that sort of that scholarship is also starting to happen around abolition. Um, there's this incredible new book I'm, re- I'm reading right now called um, Force and Freedom by Kelly Carter Jackson, um, which is about sort of the, the use of arms and, and rioting um, in, the, in the abolitionist movement, uh, you know, in the, in, the 18th, in the 19th century. So I think, you know, I think there are, um, uh, and there's also sort of, you know, the production of, 
you know, I mean, rioting itself like isn't always just looting, and and there's lots of other things going on. There's there's sort of holding holding back police lines. There is uh, a lot of sort of mutual aid. There's a lot of arson, right? Of of, of hated businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a destruction. One one. It's it's a less common tactic these days, but one of the very common tactics in the '60s was um, to destroy the credit records. Uh, you would break into a department store or a bank, and you would destroy their credit records before you did anything else. That's amazing. Um, and so, so there was literal debt abolition um, would happen uh, in in riots because uh, stores that operate on credit, like they couldn't they couldn't work without with without those papers. So you know that's that's there there are a number of different. Um, Different tactics available in a riot, and also in and also you know in in the struggle. And I think one of the things that's really important for me, um, you know, to think about and talk about is that we we just need to we need to embrace um, an openness to many many different kinds of tactics. Um, and while I don't believe at all that like the ends justify the means, like I think that that's actually a bad politics that leads you down an ugly road. I also think that the way we think about tactics and politics, especially in the U.S., um, has been so foreshortened. Our imaginations have been so closed down by the ideas of nonviolence and sort of nonprofit campaigning, and you know, having a demonstration of a certain kind that appeals to the media and the state and the government. And there are so many like wild forms of of struggle that are possible. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I talk about that was huge during the unemployed movement during the Great Depression, and I think we're going to see, uh, we're already seeing come back, is eviction defense. Mm-hmm. Um, people come and they block the marshal from from evicting or the landlord from evicting. Um, you know, there there are a lot of, but there's also like, what would what would eviction sabotage look like? What does what do workplace struggles look like um, around these around these questions and these moments when building a union is maybe not. I think I think I think we get we get constrained into thinking that building a union is the only effective form of workplace organizing. It's an important one. It can be very effective. It can also um, it can also not work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, like, there's just a lot of different. We we really need to open our our horizons and our ideas about what tactics are possible um, and what we can do right now to to um, to 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 force change in the world and to and to create the change we want to see because the politicians are never going to do it for us. Thank you. And um, the the cover of the book has a crowbar and you remind us that there is a crowbar in the activist toolbox. And I guess that the imagery maybe also caused some knee-jerky reactions. But um, I, I guess looking at the history you mapped out of looting and the, even the origin of the word, do you like do you think that it's a misunderstanding of why people loot or like the idea of well, you mentioned it earlier that people want to protect their space in a society, but the mismatch, I guess, between people in this moment feigning some type of desire to have justice and that be racial justice or economic justice, but then um, getting kind of squirmy around imagery like that, a crowbar or imagery of seeing a building burn or imagery of seeing people take um, and loot back, which is something that's also I've seen people saying ever since they found out Donald Trump only paid like $750 in taxes. <laughs> right. Right. Totally. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there, there is a sort of a line of critique that I, that I talk about in the book and that I'm, I'm sympathetic to the politics of, which say, you know, the real looters are Christopher Columbus, they're colonizers, mm-hmm. they're the capitalists. Um, you know, it's war, it's armies in war, they do looting. And I am completely sympathetic to the arguments that are being made by that, by that framing. But all of those, um, all of those, 
things that capitalists are doing or that settlers are doing can also be described as um, colonialism, as plunder, as um, as booty, as spoils. You know, there's all these different words for it. Whereas people rising up and fighting back um, during a riot and attacking property during a riot, like looting is the only word for that. Um, we don't actually have many meta, uh, many many synonyms for that. And I think that that has to do with, as you said, the 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 deep racialized history of the word. Um, but it's also a strength of 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 that idea. And of course, that's the thing I'm trying to talk about and historicize and defend, not literally any moment in which property is taken by force or whatever is not mm -hmm. what I'm defending. Obviously, it's not in yeah. defense of home invasion. Um, um, I think as to the, the sort of the, the sort of knee jerk, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people have been are forced by the power of the movement were forced in June um, and July they were forced to speak. They were they were they were they were frightened mm -hmm. of the of the of the ferocity and the widespread popularity of the movement. Um, and they were they you know I mean you saw like you know what uh, like Netflix had like a you know black movies you know black liberation yeah. <laughs> area and like you know like uh, I I I you know I play some some video games and this game Apex Legends this free game like started with like a Black Lives Matter you know startup on this like online shooting game you know there's just all this there was all all this shit like that um because they're scared mm -hmm. because they're 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 and and i think there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about the way they're trying to capture that and they're trying to capitalize on that and that's true that's part of it part of it is they're trying to capitalize and defang it but part of it is also that they're scared of the ferocity and the power they recognize a lot of people recognize that the world pointed to in the george floyd uprising is one in which they will not be special in which they will not be powerful in which they will not have the place that they still have and so one of the ways that people can react to that is to say, oh, well, of course I'm sympathetic to it, but 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 keep it legal, keep it within the bounds. But the only reason they're even saying they're sympathetic to it in the first place is because there's been this tremendous wave of rioting and looting that has like burned down a police precinct and like, you know, like there's just been this huge, huge wave of uprising. And suddenly, you know, in the face of that, suddenly they go, well, of course I support the goals of the uprising, but I don't think they should rise up. <laughs> right like it's this very it's this very um anti-historical way of thinking where people sort of you know uh people will will erase what literally happened a week ago a month ago and they'll say i think looting and rioting is bad for the movement what movement mm -hmm. the movement started with three days of rioting and looting that like culminated in, in an act of driving police out of their out of their precinct and burning it down that was so inspiring and powerful that it, it spread the uprising to the entire country so what movement do you support if you don't support that? Yeah. And, and have you ever seen like cops leaving a precinct from like the back door and like freaking out? No, I mean, I, 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 you know, in, in Watts in 65, um, a precinct got attacked, but I don't think it was fully taken over. Um, I've, I've looked back, um, there was a riot in 78, um, a bunch of, of, uh, the Hasidic community in Brooklyn, um, police, uh, I think, uh, attacked someone in their community and they managed to drive police out of a precinct for a night. But otherwise I actually can't find an example of it. Mm -hmm. I, I also, I'm not like, I'm not as good with history as you are and others are, but I, I just, I was like kind of also looking cause I was like, this is, this feels different. It, it was huge. It was huge. And it, and it, and it made, you know, it made abolition seem possible because one of the things that I do in the book and that I think is really important and an important role of history for abolitionists is to recognize that these systems are relatively young, right? Mm -hmm. The police 
you know, the very oldest police forces in the entire world form in the late 18th century. Most of them form in the mid 19th century, um, you know, 1840s, 1850s. Um, prisons are forming in the 19th century as well. Like there's sort of proto prisons in the in the late seven late 1700s, but mostly. So like these these systems, these these forms are all very new, but. One of the things that sort of ideology and, and the way that we learn about history and the way that we learn about, about society works is that we don't learn that. We, we are taught mm -hmm. to believe that police have always been there, you know, that there have always been something like the police as they exist now. You know, they've, maybe they've changed uniform, maybe their technology has changed, but they've largely been there forever. It's just not true. And I think that historical argument is important, but it's much, much less powerful than the direct action argument that was made by the by the folks in Minneapolis, where they demonstrated that police can be defeated. Yeah, they can be driven out of their out of their base. Their base can be burned down. All of the things that are valuable and it can be taken. Um, that is an incredible and powerful lesson that that I don't think anyone who really took it to heart will forget. And you you unspool this history um, in a way that I haven't seen mapped out like as a constellation. And you do get at, like you said before, the whiteness, property and police um, to teach us. But I guess it, these systems are or these bodies are um, governing kind of bodies that run us like police um, prisons are relatively young, as you mentioned. So. How, like how how do you map out how they became kind of the modus operandi of the state and how we live? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the way that we think it's so normal is by, um, is largely by like media. Um, and, and by that, I don't just mean, you know, the news, but also TV. I mean, what other, what other occupation can you think of where without, without a question, you could name 10 TV shows off the top of your head about it, right? The police, that's mm -hmm. it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And even like Brooklyn nine, nine, like people on the left would like it. And I yeah. was like, really? Like I, Copaganda, like Copaganda is a really, really intense project. Um, or Law and Order SVU. Right. Yeah. Law, I mean, there's Law and Order, there's CSI, they're like the most popular shows. They're the most popular, you know, it's, 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 it's wild how, um, how mythologized the police are in society. There's an argument that's made by, um, by Christian Williams in his book, um, uh, Our Enemies in Blue, um, that I think is really, really helps me um, understand some of this stuff, uh, how they became so central, which is that the police who emerged largely to um, oppress, uh, to keep, to, 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 to capture fugitive slaves and to um, oppress riotous crowds in the cities, um, some of them abolitionists, some of them just union, just workers to, to, to crush labor organizing of many kinds. These police that organize, they're also the first centralized urban bureaucracy, bureaucracy. And they, um, and, and, and once the city government, you know, cause city governments, you know, mayors, they, they, they didn't actually have that much power over everyday life in the street, um, generally. And yeah, so, so these bureaucracies emerge, um, to do these, these violent acts of, of repression, but then the city, you know, sort of the city government recognizes, oh my God, we have these, like this, this organized gang of bureaucrats who are very good at doing things. So they start asking the police to start doing sanitation. You know, the police end up doing, you know, um, all of these different tasks and eventually city governments start spinning off different departments out of the police or forming new departments in the image of the police. Um, so the entire like bureaucratic urban apparatuses to which we are like accom uh, accommodated, um, you know, like the, the different departments, the way that they're managed and run, all of these are based in the history of the police, which is to say in the history of anti-black oppression, anti-worker, anti-proletarian anti oppression, and like the capture of fugitives and the protection of property. So like 
every single city department, even the ones that you know socialists, you know think think need to be better funded, and that we we talk about we we want you know them to be to you know and and it makes sense you know health departments, whatever you know housing street you know streets you know all uh, public transit, all of these departments are modeled on the police. An abolitionist imaginary requires us to actually see that history and to recognize that there that the very way that our streets are organized, the very way that our cities are organized, the very way that we think about how life should move is so deeply, deeply implicated by anti-blackness, by white supremacy, by settler colonialism, by the police, that we don't have solutions for that necessarily, but 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 we we can't exactly we can't just imagine our way out of that, but we do have to look at that history and think about how we reproduce it, therefore, in our everyday lives, in our struggles, in our organizations. Think about what we're doing that have this sort of innate policing bias. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And I think, and I think only through action and only through struggle can we can we start to break them down. But 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 uh, but we have to. Thank you. And um, I, I hope this is fair a fair assessment from reading your book, but I think um, maybe this is my own bias because this is how I approach things, but I feel like you use a kind of Marxist feminism in, at parts or like you, you have a lens that's just very layered and I can feel the Marxist currents in it, but there's also this um, recognition of race and gender and colonialism. Is that fair? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm anti-state till I die, so I tend to I tend to organize with with um, with anarchist folks more than um, more than you know the the wave of Marxists now who tend to be there's a lot of authoritarian communists out there right now who I don't really fuck with, but um, but I think like but yeah I mean I, I mean a tremendous number of my sources were Marxist um, the Black Radical tradition anarchism abolitionism generally all of these all of these I think the sectarianism around that stuff is really is boring. Um, and I think we need to be, we need to be really brave and, and, and fierce and the feminism is absolutely important to, to be clear. Uh, we need to be really brave about taking what we can use and leaving behind the other stuff and not creating heroes mm-hmm. or, um, idols of people who, um, wrote a book, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 or wrote a few books or, or fought in a struggle, mm-hmm. um, that was limited by their times. Um, so I think, in that way, like I think I do, I do think of a sort of Marx. I, I, I do. Th- I think I tend to think with a sort of Marxist materialist kind of like way of thinking about history. Um, but I tend to, yeah, I think I have a more of a an anarchist anti-authoritarianism edge to it as well as I would is what I would say. And and I would love to hear confirming that. I would love to hear your thoughts on how um, social reproduction fits into this defense of looting because of. I'm just thinking about. Also, like where where people and workers are made and remade, but also like family as like such an important site of reproduction and and thinking about when people are resisting um, who they're fighting for and who we're all fighting for in our like collective struggle. Yeah, this was this was a point that I didn't end up developing very much, but was very important to my thinking in the in the book. It was sort of a, a premise, like a, a background uh, idea going on for me as I wrote it, um, which is that. Looting and rioting largely strikes in the in the place of social reproduction. Um, so for you know for for folks who aren't familiar, you know for Marxists, there's production, which is the factory, the mine, the farm, the place where the prime the, the place where the commodities are being directly produced. And then there's sort of reproduction or social reproduction, as as Marxist feminists have, have really focused on, um, which is where the people are being reproduced. Um, so the family, uh, but also you know a movie theater. There's a commodity being sold, but also people are being you know, uh, are being soothed. It's sort of doctor, healthcare, care of all sorts. 
the ways in which people, workers are are kept and, and subjects, workers and subjects are kept alive, kept active, kept capable. These are all forms of social reproduction. Um, the riot largely strikes in the sphere of social reproduction. Um, for one thing, as you as you were sort of alluding to, um, it's family members coming out and expressing grief and rage um, at often at police violence. And that is very, very powerful. We don't have a lot of spaces for grief and mourning in this society. Um, it's not very efficient uh, capitalistically to spend a lot of time in grief. Um, it is not. Uh, there's not a huge market, although they've tried and funerals are expensive as hell. There's not a huge market for grief and for loss. Um, and so we have a and 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 the elderly who are less who are less um, effective workers are largely thrown into sacrifice zones like nursing homes or or gated communities or whatever if they're lucky. And so 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 we just we just really as a society don't have a lot of space. And then this is doubly true, obviously, if you're black in America, um, your grief is is not recognized and is not taken seriously. So riots provide an a, an opportunity for that form of social reproduction. Very important grieving feeling rage, expressing that, sharing it, um, being in it, being present in that feeling. It also uh, is a space where people can experience a lot of joy and pleasure in a place where they normally can't, in a city street, where normally we're walking around, we're being sold things, we're being marketed to, we're being confronted by people in the street, you know, women are being harassed, um, the police are there, um, we have to work really, we're either working or trying or using our wages to get things that people like us made streets, which are very, um, city streets are very hostile often. And one thing that a riot does is it, and, and this freaks out police and politicians so much. They talk about it all the time. It freaks them out so much. Riots are really happy places. Riots are very carnivalesque is like a phrase that you see a lot. And so I think so, so it also is a form of social reproduction in that it, it turns, it transforms the street into somewhere we want to be. And one form of social reproduction is creating spaces of care. Um, and so we repress the thing that makes that care impossible, the police, property, whiteness, um, to some extent. Um, we repress the things that make that make uh, that make that care impossible to create a space where we can care for each other, enjoy space together, um, have this pleasure, have this experience. Also, in a more sort of material way, um, social reproduction refers to uh, you know is having things to eat, having th having a place to live. Looting immediately gives us more. Um, it gives us things that we need. Um, if we don't get caught, it gives us things that we need to reproduce our lives and to do so pleasurably. Often, uh, liquor or nice clothes, things that we wouldn't have access to otherwise, um, most of the time, uh, suddenly become available to us. So there's many many ways in which the riots act on the level of social reproduction. Um, um, and I think it's it's a really important. Um, I think it's really really important to understand riots and looting as feminist praxis. Um, I think they they get to they get talked about a lot as kind of macho or masculinist or whatever. And I think like actually instead it's very very important to recognize them as as a form of feminist praxis. Thank you, and I I really appreciate the expansion on social reproduction because um, I I was like oh I'm reading this with my own bias lens uh it's it's something I think about a lot too about when I go to a protest how do I feel when I go to like an uprising how do I feel and I feel I feel at home I feel more mm. comfortable than when mm. I'm just walking down the street on a normal day mm. I see people I know I see people I love I share food and so I really appreciate that um Vicky and uh, my next my next question that I'd love to ask you is about your chapter all cops are bastards. <laughs> ACAB has been a slogan throughout these uprisings. It's on posters, it's on t-shirts. It's something that people keep saying and tweeting. And, and that is another part that I have seen um, some people who consider themselves leftists 
argue, and I would love to hear um, your expansion or, or thoughts on why you named a chapter, All Cops Are Bastards. It's great and provocative, but also you lay out a history in that chapter. But um, people people like to claim or argue that the, are cops working class or are they not working class? And and I, you're the smarter person, so I'd like to hear from you. <laughs> I'm no, going to stop rambling true. That's now. not true at all. So it really depends on, um, I think, how you are defining the working class. Um, because if when you say the working class, you mean the people who are necessarily revolutionary or revolutionary and are going to participate in the revolution, then no, the police are not working class because the police cannot participate in the revolution as police. Um, the only thing the police can do uh, to assist a revolution is to quit their jobs. Um, mm-hmm. You are seeing, we're seeing some of that actually in Belarus right now. There's a, a sort of a, a trend of um, police, uh, policemen sort of making these viral videos where they say, you know, I'm seeing what's happening. I'm disgusted. And they throw down their badge, you know, and they, and they destroy their uniform. Um, this is like a sort of a form of, of thing, a thing that's happening in part of the uprising because police are counter-revolutionary. That is what they exist to do. They exist to um, protect property and to repress uh, uprising, uh, particularly black and indigenous uprising, but any uprising at all. Um, so so if, if that's what you mean by the working class, then no, they're not. If you have a very... Um, if you have a sociological definition, if you mean like a certain kind of, you know, uh, um, where they're born and how much money they make and have, then yeah, some of them are working class, sure, but then it's not a very meaningful category. Um, I think ultimately that question is kind of a is 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 being used. People who say the police are part of the working class, so we can't be anti-police. Um, that's a moral argument. That's sort of saying that what they are saying is that like that like we need somehow to appeal to literally everyone um, who is of a certain wealth background, maybe. But I don't even think they really mean it. Like I think actually what 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 those people actually mean ultimately, I think when they say the police are part of the working class is I don't want to abolish the state. I don't want to abolish the police. I don't want to change things revolutionarily. I want things to transform in such a way that there's more redistribution, that maybe there's more justice, there's more, you know, there's better ecological policy, but ultimately things don't really change. Um, because because there is no change, the no revolutionary transformation without as the very baseline, it is not sufficient, but as the baseline, the abolition of the police, both as they exist and policing as a system. Um, so I think, um, you know, when, when, when I, you know, I was very pleased that I got a, a publisher to run with a chapter called that, <laughs> um, as you picked up on maybe, um, it was, it was very pleasurable. Um, but I think also, um, you know, I, I was very delighted because I think, you know, before the George Floyd uprising, I think that might have been actually more controversial. Um, I remember, you know, even during um, during the the, the Ferguson uh, and Baltimore and sort of Black Lives Matter wave, 2014, 2015, there was a lot of conflict about whether fuck the police was an acceptable politics, you know? Um, and that has really pushed, that's gone really, really far. A lot more people um, feel the police are at, at a total historic low point in their popularity and their respect societally. And and that is an incredible achievement of the movement. Um, and, and, and as part of Ferguson and Baltimore as well, to be clear, it's been, it's been a decade of this struggle going all the way back to Oscar, the Oscar Grant rebellions in 2009, and then hopping further back to the sixties um, and to LA in 92. Um, so anti-police, anti-police, uh, sentiment is, is so important because even, even a 
undeniably reactionary sector like the army. Um, in revolutions, the army can change sides. The army can depose a government, right? Um, it's not always what you want to happen because then in Egypt, for example, in Egypt in 2011, the army then becomes its own uh, form of reactionary power and things don't really change. So it's not that that's, that's definitely desirable, but police cannot be a revolutionary subject because they exist to repress revolution. That's what they do. Um, and there is no there is no world uh, in which people are free that also has police and prisons in it. Um, and on that point, I am I am totally unyielding um, and unsympathetic to to arguments otherwise. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I think um, it's it's one of the salient arguments among many that you make in your book. Um, and and again, the the joy you must have had in naming that chapter, I can imagine. Uh, it's just such a great, it's just such a great name for a chapter of a book. Um, and uh, I I guess like that the other big kind of argument that I see leftists uh, go back and forth on, besides the ACAB one, is um, kind of the the line that they that some of them present, which is like, oh, people are destroying their own neighborhoods. And I think you do an excellent historical kind of mapping of how that's actually wrong. And I would love to hear you talk about that a bit. Yeah, um, I think, you know, people are destroying their own neighborhoods is a very, very fundamentally anti-materialist idea of what someone's own neighborhood is. Um, like I, people... The owners of businesses and properties often don't reside in the neighborhood where they happen. The money often, and this is a thing that people talk about. Um, in fact, liberals often will talk about this: that the money leaves the community and it should be, you know, local businesses or whatever, or family businesses. Um, but, but even you know, there there is literally no way that a neighborhood. Um, under capitalism can be owned by its residents because the entire premise of capitalism is the extraction of wealth and surplus from the working class and from the black and from the poor. Um, there is no there is no way that we can own a neighborhood um, where uh, capitalist exchange and work continue because they they will always be a site of alienation from our own the products of our own labor, alienation from our own bodies, our own experiences. Um, and so I think there is a a fundamental you know. Um, and it's and I, I think it's also it's also there's there's you know that that's a confusion that's sort of a, a confusion of geography with power right like I don't know I don't know who lives in a place where they feel like they have real democratic power in their neighborhood like in in America I I mean maybe some people do I guess like I guess the owners of businesses maybe feel that way or whatever or like people on you know I don't know on on, on what like in a in a in a you know homeowners association or something like I don't understand who these people are um, who think that the neighborhood represents represents power um, the geographical location represents power um, but it's also a fundamentally anti-black trope um, in that it it implies that that the people who are rising up don't know what they're doing um, that they are just you know that they're acting savagely animalistically um, you know that they don't understand how how the world works um, and they're destroying quote unquote their own neighborhoods like what are they doing well they live in those neighborhoods every day they go to the store where they get followed around by the fucking shopkeeper they get harassed by the police on the street corners they pay rent to the landlords who don't live in the community the slumlords um, you know there's a there's a huge uh, there's been all these studies that show that the poorer and blacker a community is, the higher concentration of chain stores there are there, right? Um, there's all of this data that shows that like that like poor people just don't own or have power in their communities. Um, many of the people who riot will have worked often. They will have worked in um, in these places, in these businesses that they destroy. They will have been exploited there. They will have been robbed of, of hours of their lives there. 
And they, uh, and you know, as Asada says in, in, in her autobiography, Asada says, you know, I'm glad they destroyed those neighborhoods because the, the store owners were robbing them in the first place, you know, I think is the quote. So I think, you know, there's this, there's this weird, I, there is this confusion among people who say that they're anti-capitalist, but then, then when they see local instances of capitalism, um, being attacked suddenly get very uptight. Um, and I think that that is, uh, that's a contradiction that they have to really work on in themselves because capitalism isn't just, it's not anti-corporatism. We're not just against the board of Boeing or whatever. We are against capitalism in the ways that it functions in, in our daily lives. And many of us experience capitalism mostly in terms of the the corner store and the local, you know, the pawn shop and the fucking liquor store and the bank in our neighborhood. That's actually how we experience our oppression most often day to day um, on top of obviously the police and the courts. So I think the idea that, that, and, and, and in paying our rent and in going to work, this is how we all experience our oppression. Um, the idea that, that we would somehow, um, you know, when when we have to rise up, recognize that we have to go somewhere else to fight back is is offensive. But also on top of that, in this uprising, one of the things we've seen has been a lot of attacks on um, downtown business districts. It happened here in Philly. Um, it happened in in Chicago. They attacked the Magnificent Mile. A bunch of looters and rioters hit there. Um, in New York, they went down to Soho and a lot of Manhattan, as well as in local neighborhoods. Um, and, and you're seeing both happen. Um, the people who say they're destroying their own neighborhoods don't suddenly go, hooray, they've attacked Soho. Like, this is so great. I'm behind this, you know? <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would believe those people were in good faith if they celebrated instances where people fought the bigger capitalists in their community, but they don't because it's not really about that. It's just a dodge. It's just a way of, of trying to protect property and trying to protect the system as it exists, but pretending you're actually concerned about the tactics and the optics. Yeah. And I think your book um, challenges people and your book, along with all of the other pieces that have been coming out and the uprisings themselves has been challenging people to really push themselves towards an anti-capitalist understanding of protest policing and property, uh, which you just eloquently addressed with the, the this whole like idea of destroying your own neighborhood. But a last like a last kind of thing I want to grapple with before like winding down is uh, this idea that um, some people think that looting is disorganized and that spontaneity is not good. Um, you've put forward along with others that uh, looting is a, a powerful tool to bring about real lasting change. So those are your words, but others have also put forward that argument. Um, whereas there's some leftists that I've seen argue that looting is disorganized. It does not actually bring about lasting change. Um, it's too spontaneous. And I'd love to hear you expand on why it can bring about lasting change, but also why it, why the spontaneity can be good. Um, so for, for that, you know, one of the people who's really, really important for me understanding, um, these politics, um, around spontaneity and organization is W.E.B. Du Bois, um, in his, in his incredibly vital black reconstruction. Um, he talks about the way in which, um, people generally failed to recognize the, the massive spontaneous organization behind both the abolitionist movement, uh, the underground railroad, but also what he calls the general strike of the slaves, um, in which, um, over 500,000 enslaved people rose up, threw down their chains, fled the plantation. Um, and many of them then joined the union army and, and, and destroyed the Confederacy both from within and from without. Um, and I think, you know, that, that there were no, um, the Underground Railroad too, uh, Eric Foner writes about this in, in his book on it, and many people have as well, um, was 
decentralized. There, it wasn't a membership organization. The people who were involved weren't, didn't know each other necessarily um, outside of local contexts. Um, it often was 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 very sort of spontaneous in many ways, um, especially since people would often uh, just flee the plantation. Um, you know, one of the thing, one of the main, main tactics of the Underground Railroad was um, was activists would hang out at ports or at um, or at places where people were arriving, uh, you know, coaches were arriving from the South and they would just hang out and see and like watch and see if they saw someone who they thought was recently escaped. And then they would go and talk to them and help them if, if they were indeed, you know, a fugitive. Um, things like that are, are, are very organized in a way, but they are, do not, you know, when, when people talk about organization in, um, especially after the last 40 years, but also as, as influenced by the Communist Party of the 20th century. Um, people think of a sort of centralized organization with membership and with meetings and with a certain sort of agenda and a strategy laid out from the top from a sort of in a centralized way. Um, all this sort of this, all these thinking, this that that too many people is organized, or perhaps a union, you know, a a a, a legally crafted, um, you know, bond, you know, organization that that has bylaws and that has a constitution and that, you know, that that functions in a certain predictable way, and that like that's where real power lies. What 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 my book hopes to trace is that the history of real revolutionary movement in America has largely been disorganized. Um, even the moments where um, unions have been have gotten really powerful, the CIO in the in the sit-down strikes of 35-36, um, the Knights of Labor in the 1880s, um, and of course the general strike of the enslaved, um, all of these moments and movements in retrospect were organized under a under a certain banner, but um, but at the time those banners were very very decentralized. They were very very chaotic. Um, if you look at the history of the SDS or the Black Panther Party um, in the U.S., um, even though even though often those sort of cadres, there was this very this big, especially in the Black Panther Party, there was this performance of really disciplined cadres and doing all this drilling and stuff. Um, the actual party itself was wildly dis, 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 um, de decentralized um, and 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 really like was not actually. Um, and and people just opened chapters and affiliated. Um, it was not super well controlled from the top. Um, and to the extent that it was centralized, it was vulnerable to um, infiltration and destruction by Cointelpro, um, which is a history that we don't have time to get into here. But um, all of which is to say that when that the working class is always already organized, it's organized by the nature of its labor, by the ways that it lives, um, we have to be organized to survive. We have to do a lot of mutual aid just to survive. We have to know uh, know what else, what else is going on in our community to survive. There are all these forms of organization that are what we would call social um, or uh, or even just oppressive forms of organization, right? Like the workplace, where we all have we have these coworkers. That's a way of being organized, even if it's not you know our power. Um, <clears throat> so so the idea that that the revolutionary subject exists, but is just disorganized and is waiting for the revolutionary to organize them to rise up um, and overthrow power is is a is a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's a destructive fantasy because it leads us down bad um, paths in terms of strategy, in terms of what we what we think our task is to do. Um, so spontane spontaneity is a form of organization. Um, it is a form. It, it and in rioting and looting, um, to be more specific and less abstract and theoretical. Um, you know, one of there there are these tactics that reemerge again and again um, in the '60s in LA in '92, and then again in this uprising. Um, there are certain sort of tactical forms of knowledge that require 
complex coordination across distance um, that require you know lots of people working together in in complex ways. They just don't plan it out ahead of time or have a meeting to talk about how it worked. Right? Um, for example, um, you know one of the one of the tactics that was very present in the 60s uprisings was there would be what what um, Gerald Horn refers to as lead looters um, in his incredible book, Fire This Time, um, about Watts. Um, and there would be these, these looters who would go out and they would smash out the windows of a store and they would fight the police and then they would drive away and the police would follow them off. And then a bigger crowd would come and loot the store and destroy the credit records, as I talked about, and then burn it down. And then there would be a group of people who then watched it burn down and fought off firefighters who were trying to put it out. All of these different protest roles, all of these different rioting roles require a form of organization, but it's spontaneous and it doesn't involve someone having a, a capital R role that they live for, that they're, they're an organizer, you know, and that that's all that they do. And it's their identity. That's not how how those things work. And it's not historically how revolution has tended to work um, when it has worked well. Um, and often those forms of organization have left revolutionaries, people who I, I, I believe, you know, have, were acting in good faith and were largely believed they were making the world better. Um, forms of organization have left revolutionaries much more open to recapture by the capitalist state to, um, or by capitalism more willing to go for smaller reforms. Um, it is easier to trap an organization in bureaucratic struggles with the state rather than direct action struggles. Um, it's also easier to behead them. Um, things like Cointelpro work a lot better when there's a clear leadership who you can you know, infiltrate, destroy, arrest, what, what have you. So there are many, many reasons why certain forms of organization and the party that are, are the bread and butter of a certain kind of leftist thinking um, need to be modified and need to be challenged. And they and 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 the reason that I come to that conclusion is not because of any sort of ideological basis, but because of my participation in these movements over the last decade and watching what has worked and what hasn't worked, and watching the way these forms emerge and 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 fall away. And I think we are witnessing, we have witnessed a decade of massive global upheaval, 2011 to 2012, and now again, 2018 to the present, massive, massive uprisings all over the globe. And none of them have been, quote unquote, organized in the way that I think a lot of leftists talk about organization. So either those aren't real uprisings, those aren't real revolutions. Okay, that's an argument. That's good faith. You know, you're, 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 you're following the logic of your, of your argument. Or movement and revolution are possible in ways that don't require that form of organization. Thank you. And um, yeah, I, I agree, obviously, like the Arab Spring, I don't view that as organized in the way that some expect organizing to be yeah. done um, in all of these other moments. And that's like such an interesting history that I did not know about with um, the, I knew that the debt records were destroyed, but I didn't think about all the steps that went in. Um, so people are clearly coordinated. Yeah. Um, and, and just thinking about this disinformation and these, these questions that people throw at people to, to address that I've been also asking you that are from quote unquote, the left, but you're, you're getting attention from mainstream media. And I guess, how do you, um, contend or prevent misinformation? Um, because it seems to be like the New Yorker, I, you've answered those questions phenomenally. Oh, thank you. That was a very, uh, very confrontational interview. I was, uh, I, I, I wasn't totally sure what it was going to be like. So I, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I, 
You know, I mean, on some level, there is no there is no conflict with misinformation. There's there's no way to defeat the misinformation of the media machine because they control the modes of distribution and 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 you know they control the way that they talk about things. Um, you know, you can have social media, you can have reading groups, you can have discussions like this. Um, you know, there's lots of ways that we can fight back, but ultimately, the media is going to to tell its lies. Um, and the best way to fight back, um, as I was sort of saying with regard to the third precinct, the best way to fight back is with direct action. Um, Huey P. Newton has this, this, this quote about this, about um, how in Watts, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but in Watts, the black community destroyed the property of, of the white men to such an extent that no matter what the police said, no matter what the media said, the true nature of the struggle was communicated to the rest of the black community in America. Um, I think, you know, people talk about direct action getting the goods, but I think one of the things that's so threatening about rioting and looting and direct action in general is that it goes around the media. It's not interested in talking to the media. It doesn't talk to the people in power. It talks to other people around the world and around the country and in our state and in our city who we want to join us in the street. And it talks directly to them and it shows them, this is what we can do. This is what we could do if we all fought together. Thank you. And um, I, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, alternative strategies, uh, but direct action is the alternative strategy. So I appreciate you answering that already. And then um, I, I guess as non-Black people, myself and yourself, um, how how do we like enter this type of work with care? Because you've done it with so much care. And I would, if you're open to it, love to hear a bit about your approach and your thinking. Yeah, this is, this is, so this is very, um, very important. And, 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 um, you know, I mean, I think the, for the book and for that work, um, the thing that I, that I did was, which, which I think was, I mean, it, it took work, but it wasn't hard, um, emotionally or ethically was to read really, really deeply in the black radical tradition and to just take it really seriously and to listen to the movement, um, as it moves in the street and to follow and pay attention to what is happening and how black folks have fought for freedom and described freedom and lived freedom in this country. And to take that really, really seriously and to understand that as non-black people, we don't have the same perspective and we won't ever be able to understand it as immediately as those movements have. Um, and, you know, I hope I act with the hope that um, that it is possible for non-black folks to betray whiteness and to fight back against it, um, and to betray anti-blackness and to struggle against it. I, I act with that hope. Um, I, I understand that many many black radicals don't think that it's possible. Um, that 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 you know that that there's something. Um, innate in most people who are not in, in people who are not black that they won't ever fight for liberation to the full extent. I hope I hope that's not true, but it might be. But I think the thing that that just is so important is is to like, you know, and if it, it sounds like sort of some sort of like liberal tweet or something, but like like just like read read these black, you know, black women and black queers who have done this incredibly important work for centuries, work that they should never have had to do, that's based in their their oppression and they're being trapped in this country and in this anti-black world. And just listen and take it really, really seriously. Um, and don't I think a lot of like listen to black people gets weaponized in this way where like white people sort of like look for um, the black person who agrees with their politics the most and then like holds that person up in like a tokenistic way. Um, and that's really violent and nasty. Um, and I hope I haven't done that, but I, there's always, there's always the threat that I have. Um, you know, that's, that's always a threat that I'm contending with and that I'm aware of that, that, that I'm always capable of, of reenacting these forms of violence. 
So, you know, I just try to give as much of my income that, that comes to, to black trans people in my community, um, and to, and to, um, and to just really listen and read and and study and struggle side by side with these people and to just um and to just recognize to recognize that the the entire history of liberation thought um there's an incredible video that's been going around recently um uh that about how um how much of 19th century socialists and and enlightenment thinkers were sort of actually cribbing from indigenous thinking um in the in the US um from the great law of peace the Iroquois uh the Iroquois Confederacy treaty and and um you know, just really recognizing another thing that we can talk about is um, Foucault, who I like and I fuck with. I think Foucault is very, very helpful. But also Foucault um, was reading a lot of George Jackson and a lot of the Black Liberation Struggle stuff, and he doesn't he doesn't cite them. Um, and, you know, scholars have shown that he was engaging with this black, black radical thought and then not talking about it. So, uh, so to recognize that so much of what is um, so many, if not all of the liberation dreams that have been meaningful, um, in this country and in, and indeed in this world, um, under capitalism and under anti-blackness have come from black and indigenous people to really take that seriously, um, to really struggle to understand that and to see that seriously, um, is the base for, for, for moving towards that. But I, but I don't have any easy answers. That's okay. I, I, I didn't expect you to have an easy answer and I don't think any of us do, um, and I really appreciate your thinking on whiteness. And we we talked a little bit before about um, whiteness as property and, and how people should definitely look into Cheryl Harris. And I'll link it in the show notes for people listening and um, Dubois and like the wages of whiteness and even thinking about how whiteness expands uh, is important. Um, and whiteness as not being heritage is something I've heard you say before, too. But I guess um, to wrap up, can you tell me a little bit in the audience about this idea that you also present about uh, the need to abolish whiteness. Yeah. So, um, so if if following the arguments that that I've made here and in the book, if whiteness is ultimately a form of property, um, which which I believe it is, um, then in order to abolish capitalism and to abolish the police, we need to abolish whiteness because whiteness is the uh, uber property, the or property from which all other forms of property devolve. Whiteness is the thing that the police protect and fight for. Um, it is not, it does not mean murder all European born, you know, European lineage people. I hope, I hope that's not what it means. That would be, be very terrible. But, uh, but abolishing whiteness does mean like that, that, the you know everything that whiteness represents, which is um, a certain kind of humanity, a certain kind of property ownership, a certain kind of being in the world of thinking, of policing, of um, of, of of sexualizing, of gender, a certain form of gender. All of these things um, need to be destroyed um, and abolished as such, because as long as whiteness exists, there will like white supremacy will also will also be part of the system and private property will also be part of the system and police of some form or another will emerge. Um, because whiteness is ultimately a form of property protected by the police, um, informed by its domination over the black and the indigenous. That's that that is the definition. The definition of whiteness is it's both property and it is being someone over, you know, being a rational person who is over um, the African or the indigenous uh, person, right? So it's so it, it is the it is what allows you to own, um, you know, these days more or less, usually more metaphorically, but not totally, um, to own black people, to own indigenous land is what whiteness means. Um, and so, if we want to collapse the police, if we want to collapse these forms of ownership, if we want to destroy capitalism um, and its its various modes of production and exploitation, we have to destroy whiteness. 
Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I think sometimes people just don't sit with terms uh, and I appreciate you being like, this is what it actually <laughs> means and, and laying it all out that way. Uh, Cause I think I, again, these are my own biases, but uh, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, thank you so much. And I recommend people uh, engage with the book if they can and are able to. Uh, so I, you've presented in this conversation, but also in the book, uh, just such a great argument for how tactics like looting, self-defense, riots, vandalism um, have revolutionary potential for a political project to to overthrow like a, a system of racist capitalism, not just capitalism, which is what I really appreciated, Vicky. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, if people want to read the book, um, a lot of right wing trolls on Twitter as a, as a way of owning me um, have shared my intellectual property. So I'm pretty sure it's pretty easy to find on the Internet um, if you if you need to read it. <laughs> Um, and where can people find you if you're comfortable with them following you? Totally. No, I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter at Vicky underscore a cab. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I it's locked right. Great it's handle. locked right now because of the wave of harassment. So, um, but it, but it, hopefully I'll be able to unlock soon. Um, and, uh, I think that's, that's it. Um, you know, I also, I also shit post about movies of people like that on letterboxd, <laughs> um, at no cop zone. I watch a lot of movies, so you can, you can follow me there. Um, Otherwise, yeah, um, I'll see you in the streets. Um, and, and thank you again so much. It's been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope you have a good week and take care. And this episode, for everybody listening, I will be linking a lot of different uh, suggested readings or names to look into because I've been scribbling them down as Vicky has been sharing with us. So it'll be fun. Thanks, Ashwa. Bye. Take care. These episodes take a small team. Many episodes are hosted by Nashalina Khan solo, political episodes co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande, art and music by Post America, editing and music by Johnny Zapras, production assistance by Raymond Conano. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B 